Welcome to the podcast, Think Biblically, conversations on faith and culture. I'm your host, Sean McDowell, professor of apologetics at Talbot School of Theology, Biola University. Today we have a return guest who I'm excited to hear from again, Pastor David Platt, author of Radical, a New York Times bestselling book, to discuss another book you've written that especially grabbed my attention because it covers a number of areas that I teach at Talbot. Your book is called Counterculture, Following Christ in an Anti-Christian Age. Uh, Pastor Platt, thanks for coming back in the program. It's good to be back. So let's jump into this book, and I have a question. You often hear people describe our culture as, say, increasingly secular or post-Christian, but in the subtitle, it's anti-Christian. Now, I know titles, a lot of thought goes into this, and sometimes publishers make that decision, but tell me the choice to do that, because I could imagine some people saying the concern would be is it could create an us versus them mentality with culture. I know that's what you don't want to do. So tell me why you would describe our culture as being anti-Christian. I would just say, I guess I'm thinking here, and part of this is fresh in my mind, just preaching through 1 Corinthians right now in the church where I pastor, but 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, like there is a wisdom in this world uh, and there's a wisdom in God's word. And they are pretty polar opposite. There is, I mean, the wisdom of the cross looks like foolishness to the world. Mm. And so it's not just kind of different, it's like antithetical to one another. So that's not to say by any means that there is not, by God's common grace, so many things in our culture that are actually good by God's common grace, that Mm. we unite together in a sense with non-believers or people from all kinds of different backgrounds and beliefs. Uh, But when it comes to the core of the gospel, it is antithetical to the wisdom of the Mm. world. And I would say there's a sense in which that's always been the case from the first century to the 21st century. And so so in that sense, it's like nothing new. Uh, At the same time, I think the ways that our culture amidst a rapidly shifting moral landscape uh, that we live in today, particularly in the uh, U.S., like we are are facing all kinds of particular challenges that just expose that reality that I would argue has mm. been there anyway, but is uh, coming to the surface, yeah, I would say in rapidly shifting ways that we as the church need to wisely respond to with good gospel conviction and compassion. So in many ways, that title is meant to draw out this supposed American gospel that we often buy going, no, no, no. There's something about the gospel in direct opposition yes, yes. to a lot of ideas in American beyond. Yeah, that's part, because that's part of what I, I, I you know, the, in this book, I try to address all kinds of different issues, but at the core, just say, we need to realize like the greatest, the most offensive stance that Christians have is not dealing with this or that on sexuality or this or that issue. Like, it's the gospel. The gospel is ultimately in a 1 Corinthians 9 kind of a sense. It's an offense uh, to our pride before God, our our sinfulness. And uh, and so we've got to realize that going into it. And then that's going to then affect the way we view all kinds of other issues. Now, I noticed the way you kind of frame this book is through the lens of the gospel. So the gospel and culture, gospel and poverty, gospel and abortion, sex, slavery, marriage, on and on and on. That's the lens through which you frame it. But this book is also not just about the gospel in terms of salvation. It's about social issues and social action. 
There's a ton of debate about this and loaded words like social justice. I'm curious if you could connect the dots. How does the gospel inform how we should think about and act on these various social issues that you address in the book? Yeah, so that's that's the big thrust of this book. It was my it's my attempt to say, okay, here's the gospel, and when so when I'm using that term right now, I'm using okay this good news that uh, we are all created by God. We've all sinned against God, rebelled against God. God has come to us in the person of Jesus, His life, His death, His resurrection that make possible reconciliation to God through repentance and faith into uh, redemption, relationship with God that lasts forever, and then all that that entails. Now now you're, you have a new heart, you have a new life, you have a new mindset, you have new desires, you have new affections, you have the way you think about relationships. So this gospel transforms everything about you. So then that gospel then transforms the way you think about sexuality. So that gospel transforms the way you think about the poor. It transforms the way. So it now, now you are you're spirit filled. You're b- believing in Jesus, reconciled to relationship with God, experiencing His life. That changes everything about how you live. And so, uh, so the aim of this book then is to then unpack. Okay, so how do these even these truths about who God is, who Jesus is, what it means to trust in him, what it means to have faith in him, what it means to live a life of repentance. Like, how does that affect the way we... So it's my attempt to then apply all those core truths of the gospel mm-hmm. to these pressing social issues around us. So is it fair enough or maybe too simplistic to say the gospel is our standing before God in terms of our salvation when we've been saved, we are compelled to go seek justice in these various areas for the unborn, those caught in slavery, a racial reconciliation. It's a response to the gospel, but not the essence of the gospel That's itself. Right. Is yes, that fair? That, yes, because that, the last thing I want to do is like dilute the gospel where it just be, kind of comes becomes everything, and it really kind of misses the heart of what I think the Bible teaches about the gospel. But the way you put it, like, compels us, yes. And that's part of what I, I kind of start the book with, was just saying, okay, we, we don't have the option of uh, living out the implications of the gospel, the Christ-centered life, when it comes to poverty in the world, when it comes to abortion in the world. Like, we can't be selective and choose mm-hmm. which ones of these issues are going to apply the truths of Scripture too, and our changed lives too. Which ones are we not? Like these are these are issues around us that we need to make sure to yes live live for justice and uh, and live for God's glory. And even yeah, you and I know as soon as we start using some of these terms, there's all kinds of loaded meaning here and there. But I think in a Micah six eight kind of way, like yes, like we we want to do justice we want to mm. love kindness and mercy and walk humbly with god in a world of sexual confusion in a world of a refugee crisis in mm. a world where billions of people are poor like how does how does our faith in christ affect the way we live we've got to think through those issues every worldview has basically creation fall and redemption how we got here mm-hmm. what went wrong in the world and how we fixed it I'm curious what you think sin would be considered as in our kind of modern-day Western culture. And let me, let me frame this to give you a chance to think about it. So 
on on page five, you cite Dawkins, who just talks about how basically there really is no right and wrong. It's just a selfish gene. And then he turns around and condemns other behaviors mm-hmm. being immoral. Mm-hmm. He can't live out this naturalistic worldview. And you rightly criticize relativism. But in my experience, no one is really a relativist because people condemn sexual trafficking. People condemn hypocrisy. So people have a moral standard, but it's not really relativism or the biblical moral standard. What do you think sin would be viewed through the eyes of our contemporary culture, you think? I think it, uh, and so where my mind's going even just right now is, Romans chapter 1, like given over to a depraved mind about not to be done, approving things that are detestable. So it's basically defining for ourselves what we think is right or wrong, helpful or Mm. unhelpful, whatever language we might use, that the world might use, and different people from different perspectives might use. But it's it's definitely, it's... uh, it's subjective personally. It is focused on how something affects me or others. So what's missing, so what's missing in all of that is the God-centered reality mm. of sin. What sin is, is ultimately offense against God. And even when it's an offense against someone else, it's that's under the banner of offense against God in a Psalm 51 kind of way, like adultery and murder that King David was guilty of against you, you only have I sinned. I was just reading this the other day, but uh, like that's, it's not that there wasn't sin against others in that, but that injustice in the world is ultimately injustice against God. Mm-hmm. And God is the one who defines right, wrong, uh, helpful, unhelpful, whatever those terms might be. And so for, for, yeah, for the world, that's what's missing the God-centeredness of an understanding of sin, if we would even call something sin. Yeah, that makes sense. I think in one sense, then, it's really nothing new, because that's also Genesis 3, Romans 1, just a little bit of a different flavor. I'm going to redefine right and wrong according to what I think. That that is the core of Genesis 3. Mm. We are the arbiters of what's right and wrong, good or evil, as opposed to letting God be the arbiter of that. And yeah, all of sin goes back to that. Well said. I, I, I think that's right. So let's dive into some of the issues in particular that you, you discuss here. And you start off by addressing poverty, by recognizing how rich we are in comparison to the world and in world history. Hmm. Put in a perspective what that means for, say, your typical American or even somebody in the West today no. compared to world history. I mean, the reality is that if we have clean water, sufficient food, Clothes, education opportunities, uh, transportation opportunities, um, shelter. Uh, and so, I mean, even just thinking about basics. I think when we think about being rich, we always think in relative terms. Like, That's right. Okay, so I'm not rich because that person's rich. So just to realize, I think, I think we need to realize, like, when most people in the world picture rich, like it's it's us. Uh, and not just in the world today, but in the history of the world. I mean, there's just, so I share just different uh, quotes, just talk about, I mean, by all standards, we are some of the richest people to ever walk planet Earth. And, and the aim there is not to say, okay, we need to feel guilty for that, or that in of itself is like wrong in some way. It's just realization. Wow, we have been given much grace. So what do we do with this? How do we see ourselves in right perspective, and then live accordingly. 
So one of the issues you discuss related to this question is poverty. So why does God care so deeply about the poor? Hmm. So many different reasons are coming to my mind. I, I was just reading Psalm 68 the other day where it just talked about his, his greatness, his majesty as the defender of the poor. Even Psalm 70, now I was thinking about reading this morning, like he, he makes haste to help the poor hmm. and the needy. So, okay, why does he do that? Why does he show his greatness, particularly on behalf of the poor? I think, I think all throughout Scripture we see certainly uh, uh, a, an acknowledgement of need, a humility before God among the poor that's oftentimes missing among the rich. Uh, I think we definitely see in Scripture the reality that uh, uh, just the, the the tables will be turned. That mm. what looks like in so many different ways, what looks uh, prosperous in this world is actually not going to be prosperous in eternity, or vice versa. Uh, I just think it's an awesome reality that our God shows His greatness by going to those who are fatherless, those who are the mm. widows, those who are the oppressed, those who are the enslaved. I mean, you just think about the whole Old Testament narrative. I mean, this was God's people in Egypt uh, and that he was defending, bringing out. And so from cover to cover in Scripture, we see that kind of thing. Hmm. That's a great way to put it. I think in John 17, when it talks about, you know, God fully revealing himself and his glory is made known on the cross— Yes, God is all the great omnis, but there's this kind of humility built into God's character mm -hmm. that just naturally cares for the poor and the broken, disenfranchised, and the marginalized. And you, you talk about this in the book a little bit, but you say guilt motivates us to change briefly about the poor. My question is what changes somebody in more long term? to care about the poor? What, what brings lasting change to care about those that God cares about just because of who he is? Yes, I think it's, I think it's, so it's not guilt, grace. Like that would be the contrast I would, I would immediately go to because, uh, so it's not, okay, I feel bad, therefore I need to do something like that. I think we all know, even practically, that just doesn't last. It may, yeah. What, what, how, how do you keep that going? You're like, feel worse and worse and worse and worse, like just practically it doesn't play. But grace, so to realize, okay, I've been given much, and I've not been given much just for me. I, I mean, this is Second Corinthians 8 and 9. I've been given much so that I might pour myself out for others. God has supplied for me for the good of others. So I think about, uh, there's so many issues that start coming to my mind, but think about uh, um, like adoption or care for orphans, mm -hmm. like... Why do that? Because we feel bad for them? Well, yes. I mean, there's certainly a sympathy, but not like guilty because we have a family or this or that, but we know. So now I would just go like back to God's grace in the gospel. We were sinners against God. God pursued us, adopted us as his children. So we are overwhelmed by that kind of grace and his rescue of us, bringing us into his family, that it just makes sense for us to go to mm. children who are in need of a family and bring them into our home. Like, it just makes sense. It's grace that just drives that. And so that's one issue uh, when it comes to the poor. Like, why have I... I don't know why I've been born into a place where I've never had to worry about a meal. Like, that's just grace from God. I had nothing to do with where I was born. Why was I not born into a place mm. where, where starving is a reality? So that's just grace. But I know it's... So I can't explain why I've 
I've been given that grace, but I knew, do know I've been given that grace for a reason, and that's to uh, pour out that grace on others. In a Psalm 67 kind of way, God be gracious to us, bless us, cause your face to shine upon us so that your ways may be known on earth, your saving power known among the nations. This grace wasn't intended to stop with me. It really is intended to spread through me. I love that that frames your book because I was reading a book recently on some of the inequalities in the world by someone who's not a, not a Christian. They said the result to inequalities is action. Go, work, make a change. And I paused and I read that and I thought, here is a works-based theology. Mm-hmm. What you're saying is, no, it starts with being broken, understanding God's grace. Then we can reach out as agents of grace and love and make a difference in all of these areas in which there is injustice. And it strikes me when we don't start with the grace you're talking about, then we Christians are going to be the loud, judgmental Mm. ones that do more damage than good. Is that kind of the heart of what you're getting to in the book? Totally the heart. Like Even as we're talking about that right now, I'm just thinking about God's grace and the fact that you and I are having this conversation, right? Like that we're in a place where we're able to have, uh, that we're having conversations about how we can give to those who are in need. Uh, like, that's grace. Like, what did we do to earn this, deserve it? Like, nothing. That's grace from God. So to be in a situation where we get to be agents, I think is the way you termed it, of grace in other people's lives, where we get to, uh, yeah, love, care for, be a picture of God's love and care for others in need. Like, I just want to live in that. I want to step mm. fully into that. And so, yes, in this book, like, it's it's just trying to call people to say, so let's do that. Let's, in a world where uh, sex trafficking is an issue, where uh, poverty, where orphans and uh, widows are in need and babies are being aborted and refugees are being driven from their homes. Like, we have so many opportunities by God's grace to be a reflection of his grace to others. Let's step into that fully. I love that you talk about issues like, say, homosexuality and abortion, which are Mm -hmm. pressing today, but you talk about sex trafficking. Mm -hmm. You also talk about poverty, so not just the typical issues that we would expect Christians necessarily to talk about. You deal on those considered issues of the left and on the right Mm -hmm. through the lens of the gospel. When you get to the issue of abortion, you dub it in the title a modern holocaust. Now, I know that was intentional. But I'm curious, how do you balance such a strong condemnation and comparison of that without shaming women, which Mm. I know is not your intention, Mm. who have had abortions or even men who have contributed Mm. to this? So why such a strong term? It's not that I disagree with you. I want to hear from you why you describe it in such stark terms and yet balance that with the grace you want to show to people who've had abortions or contributed to it in some fashion. I, uh, this is, uh, that's such a good question because I, I just think immediately about people in the church I'm pastoring right now, women and men who have walked alongside just in all kinds of ways who, yes, have abortion in their past. Um, I think this is one of the pastorally, one of the most challenging uh, issues. Well, it's, it's always there when talking about sin but uh, and its effects, its consequences, but to really balance both those. So in looking toward the future and the present, like anyone who is considering an abortion, like I just, I want to plead mm. to not do this to this baby, like to, 
to see what the Bible says about abortion, what God says about abortion, to see the seriousness of it and in a way that encourages people like don't, don't do this. And and so to do that strongly, to, to acknowledge like we're talking about millions upon millions of lives. Mm. And so so that's where, okay, using terminology like a modern Holocaust, I think is appropriate uh, for us to see the seriousness and severity of this at the same time to then, I want to, yes, on the, on the other side of my mouth, just speak to those who have uh, had abortions and or supported abortions or performed abortions and realize the seriousness of it now, but this is not like a Scarlet A, like this is this is Romans eight one. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That He heals, He restores, He redeems. I just think about so many stories. Even people are coming to my mind right now. Women who I know who have had abortions and have walked through just a healing process of confession and forgiveness and uh, restoration, and are now like working for children in all kinds of ways, and not not like in an effort to try to overcome what they did in the past, but just because their hearts have been so affected by the gospel and the grace of Christ. And so I want to love and care for and lead the church that I pastor to care for all the women who I know in our church have had abortions. So, so to do both those, um, but I just... Yeah, I don't want to minimize the seriousness of this issue. It really is millions of lives. Well, I I love your heartbeat on this because you and I speak on a lot of similar subjects, and there's such a movement today to soften sin and make things relativistic. And I appreciate in the book I'm reading it going, wow, he is bold. Mm. But it's not with an ounce of pride. It's with clarity Mm. and the gravity of sin, which in some ways helps us understand the beauty of grace. Yes. In contrast, and I think mm-hmm. you really try to keep the two of those together well. You know, that's it. I would just add there, I think uh, on this issue or any other issue, in our efforts sometimes to uh, minimize the seriousness of sin, we do end up, we inevitably end up minimizing the beauty of the gospel. Mm. So let's not think in our efforts to magnify grace that that means we need to minimize, minimize sin, like actually the the cross is so beautiful because sin is so bad like the cross is so wonderful because sin is so horrible and its consequences are so deadly it makes the cross all the greater so let's let's go like extreme in both directions extreme Amen. about the seriousness of sin and extreme about the wonder of grace and in some ways it goes without saying but all these issues you walk through whether it's on racism or whether it's mm-hmm. on poverty there is sin just as grave on all of these yes. And well, you spell that out. And that's that's part of the whole, like, I, I thought, okay, can I write a book, like, on each one of these issues? But it's like, no, let's put it all together to show that that this, this the same framework, gospel framework, so to speak, applies to how we think about Amen. all these issues. And we can't pick and choose which issues we're going to apply gospel framework to and which ones we're not. So you have a chapter on sex trafficking, and you draw a connection that I've often drawn when I speak on this, is the connection between sex trafficking and the production of pornography. Mm. Can you explain what that connection is? But also, as you spell in the book, there's this profound irony between people who are against sex trafficking, but then turn around and say, well, pornography, it's a a free expression, and it's good, and you shouldn't condemn it in any fashion. So what's that connection, and why is there irony behind this? So yeah, try to show the link between the fact that much pornography is 
developed out of essentially sex trafficking, sex slavery. And so, uh, and even even the uh, worldview behind sex trafficking or sex slavery that just sees women as an object to be used, abused, uh, whatever. And, and so to see, okay, that's one, producing pornographic material. Two, that's kind of the essence of pornography, too. Um, and so then to show just the clear inconsistency then, if, if we have like movements where uh, whatever age people, but a lot of students, for example, saying, yeah, we're all against trafficking, but then the overwhelming majority of at least male students are indulging in pornography, like this is clearly we're not. We're not making the connection with the fact mm-hmm. that we are against using and abusing women on one hand, and we are actually using and abusing women at the same time on the other hand. So we've got to just have our eyes open to that clear inconsistency. And then, so then by God's grace to battle on both fronts, like to to war against, and I hesitate to use too much war language, but uh, against sex trafficking and against pornography, and and to see that the gospel compels us to do both. I love that, and you frequently in the book point out these like cultural tensions that I think reveal the hollowness of the wider cultural ethic. Mm-hmm. Just Sunday, I was driving my family to church, and right in front of us, this huge bus came across with a picture of a girl with Down syndrome. And it was kind of celebrating her, like, isn't this beautiful in diversity? And I turned to my kids. I said, you know what? They're celebrating this. In America, 90% of kids that are diagnosed mm-hmm. with Down syndrome are aborted. How can our culture praise one and then condemn it in another? It's inconsistency yeah. when it's convenient. Mm-hmm. And I think you consistently call that, not just non-Christians, but Christians, <laughs> to be consistent yes. with our ethic. That's the challenge. So let's make sure we're not doing that in the church. Let's mm-hmm. not make sure, yes, we're not saying, and, and in so many different ways. So yes, the trafficking thing, but even that uh, to say we value life like with abortion, okay, then how does that play out in other ways we are valuing life, valuing Moms with unwanted pregnancies, for that matter. How are we valuing children who have uh, been, uh, yeah, who their parents did not have abortion, but uh, they were given up for adoption? Like, how are we valuing life across the board? Because we, if we're not careful, we can just kind of take the easy route and uh, um, say, yeah, I'm for this or for that, but then not, and just kind of with a position over here, but then not personally like give our life to showing the fruit of the gospel and God's grace and love in hard circumstances over here that you're not going to be applauded as much for, but the gospel still compels us to do. I have one last question for you. I was just with a group of high school students. We were doing a mission trip to uh, Berkeley, and I had a chance to speak to, I don't know, three, 400 college students there, many believers and non-believers, and I took questions at the end. And one of the questions, a girl said, what is a Christian ethic on homosexuality, and why would Christians have an issue with this if nobody gets harmed? Hmm. And obviously there's a lot of assumptions in this question and a certain ethic that's approaching it. I'm curious in a setting like that with a lot of non-believers, how you would address a topic as just kind of divisive as that is. 
How would you respond to a question like that? I'd say, let me introduce my friend Sean McDowell. <laughs> he's gonna he's he's gonna share this with you. Uh, like seriously, that is one thing that would go through my mind. Another thing. Uh, so, but if you weren't there and it was all on me, um, I would say, I just think I, at that point I would I want to think through. I don't know how much time I have, but I want to come back to the core. Um, like what is good and good as it's as it relates to God. So I'm, I'm coming back now to just core gospel truths about who God is and his goodness, the way he's created us. And so the question is, can we trust God with our lives, with our bodies? And I think so to, to go to harm, uh, think about a word that she used, like what is harmful? Well, I'm operating from a worldview that says what is most helpful is to trust the God who created you and your body and what he says is best for you um, and not what you or anybody else thinks is best for you, but actually to trust the one who made you. And so that's going to be what's most helpful. So then let's go. What does God say? But it's that starting point. It's that core that I just think, um, yeah, is is. Uh, so critical. I, I my mind just goes to Romans chapter one. Like it all starts when our hearts are turned away from God. That leads to just disordered thinking. It leads to disordered desires. But the mm-hmm. core issue, like if if we just talk about uh, those desires or those thoughts, like we're it's it's like we're putting band aids on broken limbs. Like the core issue is, do we believe there is a good God that we can trust with our lives? And the essence of the gospel is we don't, and we need to be saved from that, and so to go into the gospel from there. By the way, you nailed it. That was a better answer than I gave. Well, so I'm next time I'm there. That was not a better answer than what you <laughs> gave, man. And you know what I appreciate? I think there's a certain ethic somebody says right and wrong is about harm or not harming. Mm. And you're kind of affirming that by saying, yeah, we don't want to harm other people. But there's a bigger picture going on here, a spiritual kind of harm Mm. in ways we're not thinking about. And if there's a God who made us, then there's a way he wants us to live. And we only experience freedom and goodness when we are in relationship with him. So framing that answer through the gospel is the way you address a number of these other issues, talking Mm. about refugees and ethnicity and marriage Mm. and orphans and widows through that lens of the gospel. So I appreciate you answering it that way. Thanks for writing the book, Counterculture. Mm -hmm. I just want to personally say, uh, not that you need to hear this from me, but thank you for speaking truth boldly, Mm -hmm. even if that comes at a cost, but doing it with a heart of compassion and with a heart of love for believers and for the lost. Mm -hmm. Keep doing it. Mm -hmm. That's what we want to do at Biola. And thanks for modeling that. I want to encourage our readers to pick up a copy of Counterculture by David Platt. Thanks for coming on the show again. Thanks, man. This has been an episode of the podcast, Think Biblically, conversations on faith and culture. To learn more about us and today's guest, David Platt, and to find more episodes, go to biola.edu forward slash thinkbiblically. That's biola.edu slash thinkbiblically. If you enjoyed today's conversation, give us a rating on your podcast app and share it with a friend. Thanks for listening. And remember, think biblically about everything.